the atmosphere of the room has to feel authentic, but also you need the contemporary side where these remote control spots can pinpoint on a table mm -hmm. some amazing floral display mm. or some beautiful um, food that's been created for the, for the yes. event. That was the uber-talented Guy Oliver, the founder of Oliver Laws, who was our special guest in this episode to help us really explore modern design in heritage buildings. Design and architecture enthusiasts, wherever you are in the world and however you are listening, welcome to Design Pod with me, Hamish Kilburn, and my co-host, interior designer, Harriet Ford. As today's episode is all about redefining luxury. Yes. I couldn't get my words out then. Mm. Um, and I mean, we have redefined luxury on this podcast, haven't we? Going yeah, from indeed. recording Zoom with duvets above our heads to yes. in the Monotti London showroom. I know. Here I mean, Petrovia. these sofas are the epitome of luxury, really. And we're here all day, so aren't we? We did four episodes yes. at a time. We just love it, actually. We're just moving in. <laughs> we just mould ourselves into the sofa. <laughs> so, redefining luxury, we've, mm. we've got an amazing guest. We do, haven't indeed. We? Yes, like, we have. Guy yeah. Oliver Guy is just fantastic. Encyclopedia yeah. of design knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In your experience, though, because you've gone from like studio to independent, mm. like how has luxury changed in the briefs that you've received and the ones that you kind of said, I'm not going to touch that one. I now. think there's a, um, it, again, it's down to perception, really, isn't it? Luxury means different things to different people. Sometimes it means a grand dame hotel, which of course we'll talk to Guy about, mm. um, and how you possibly bring that into luxury into the 22nd, 3rd century with, you know, with that. Um, to other people, it means putting a lots of blingy furniture everywhere and really showing your wealth with some real really, uh, you know, some brands. So it depends on really who the space is for, uh, what the budget is, and, um, you know, what they're trying to achieve. Mm. You do a lot more residential now. Yeah. Luxury I mean, residential is more personable than, than yeah. hotels, I guess. And, and what Guy talks about in his interview is this whole value engineering. Mm. Do you have to deal with that as well in residential side? Yeah, we do. We do, actually. Um, it's always because the budget always comes in higher than you would want it to. And in some ways, that's part of the process. You know, you've got the wish list. You try and incorporate as much of the wish list as possible. And then you chip away at that to, to you come to a nice equilibrium between the budget and what the vision of the client's stroke designer wants. Mm. And I would say that's just part of everyone's process in fact i have done projects where budget has been of no uh you know there's no issue around the budget you just do what you want to do in some ways it's 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 not giving you enough parameters i'd love that Really? <laughs> I think, I think... No, no, you need parameters because it needs to keep you on, on track, otherwise... It stops your... It, it doesn't put boundaries <laughs> around your creativity. It's yeah. funny, actually. It I just love the idea of personally in my own life Well, I was no going to say, yeah, out with the credit card <laughs> and I'll have that, that, that and that. But, um, but yeah, it's a bit like a kid in a sweet shop. Yeah. You'll end up being sick. This series of Design Pod is sponsored by Minotti London, the UK home of the Italian furniture brand that puts stylish luxury into unmatched comfort. Guy Oliver, welcome to <laughs> Design Pod. How are you doing? Very well, how are you? Really good, thank you. Good. Really good. So, oh my goodness, your CV and your portfolio is just endless. Cornwall Hotel, Claridge's, even areas in number 10 Downing Street. Where did it all start? <laughs> Where did it start? So, it started in the Navy. Um, I joined the Navy when I was 16. And uh, they turned up at my school by accident. They were lost and it was in the middle of Stirling, in Scotland, in the middle of the, middle of the country good sign and um they were so embarrassed that the six people who got sort of sent to watch this presentation about the navy got invited on this um what's called an officer's acquaint trip and we were flown out to portugal and we went back up to Recife in scotland on an aircraft carrier Ooh. and there was an admiral on board and i was 15 at the time and he said could i drive a car and i said i know how to drive a tractor because my uncle had a farm and he got me driving him up and down the flight deck of this aircraft carrier at sea 
going in his Ford Granada, and I thought, and he said, <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said to me, "You'd make a bloody good naval officer." And as a 15-year-old, I was quite prone to flattery, and I thought, mm, "I'll join the navy." And then six months later, I did my Admiralty interview board, and I joined. But my real passion was design. So when everybody was reading Jane's Defence Weekly, um, which is like how many guns there are on a ship, or bullets in a gun or whatever it is. I was reading The World of Interiors. <laughs> and um, and um, yeah, I, while I was at sea, um, I was in the Navy for almost eight years. But while I was at sea, I, I was reading an article in The World of Interiors and it was about a man called Michael Player, who'd inherited the player's cigarette fortune. And he'd been a, an apprentice to John Fowler. In fact, his parents had paid John Fowler to take him on and um, he had this beautiful house in Aberdeenshire, which is where I'm from. And I wrote to him and I said, I'm a 23-year-old naval officer and I'd love to become an interior designer. And of course, his old queen couldn't believe his luck. And um, <laughs> so, so when I was on leave, I was invited, invited to his house, which is a place called Mulben in, in Aberdeenshire. And I drove down this beautiful drive and this wonderful park and, and there's a big sort of Georgian house and a man in a lime green tweed and a pink neckerchief and a yellow handkerchief and he had a dachshund under his arm. And I pulled the car up and I, I looked up the steps at him and, and he, got, he was all sort of quivering and he said, you may have gathered by now that I'm queer. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and he said, are you? And I was so petrified. I said, no. <laughs> and, um, and he sort of looked down and the Dachshund looked down and I thought, you know, this is going to go horribly wrong. And I said, is it a handicap in this profession if you're not? And he said, uh, well, it might help if you learnt, dear. <laughs> so then he interviewed me and he wrote two introduction letters on my behalf. One was to a lady called Imogen Taylor, who was director of Colfax and Fowler, and the other was to a lady called... Um, uh, Sylvia Lawson Johnson and I got a job as an apprentice designer at 50 pounds a week in Aberdeen um, for a year with Sylvia and I was working in pubs in the evening and you know, driving vans and doing all sorts of things to keep keep things going and acting and all, all sorts and then I kept writing to to London to Imogen and I invented a trip to London and went to meet her and then she six months later gave me a job and that was mm. my first first job with wow. in design. Do you think that's lacking from the generation of today? Because I, I hear a lot from designers when they say, you know, when we were training we would just make any excuse to go into a hotel, our favourite hotel mm. to have a coke, even though we couldn't afford it to, to see the design. Mm. I'm sure you did the yeah, same yeah, there. Absolutely. And that's not really the same now. I think a lot of the problem problem, I mean a lot now everyone's problems to solve for them you know parents have a uh, you know the idea that they're helping their kids if they if they solve their problems and mm. you know and also there's a funny meme going around at the moment about kids in the 70s who run into a wall and they just brush it off and then it's sort of kids in kids in 2020 hit the wall and they're lying on the floor demanding an ambulance and um I think especially with what's been happening with COVID, there's a lot of anxiety and mental health issues and all the things and people become naturally introverted and shy. And the one thing I always do when I'm teaching at a design school, so I often teach at KLC or at the Inchboard or one of those things, you know, usually once a term. And I always say to the designers, um, the, the trainee, trainee student designers and things, I said, you know, find somebody you respect the work of, look in the publications, look in, you know, look out there and write a handwritten personal letter 
to the person you want to work for. I said, it's pointless sending a bunch of emails. It's pointless, you know, because you'll get out of this what you put into it. Mm -hmm. And um, I never forget, I had a wonderful girl who came to work for me um, about 10 years ago. And she sent me, a, there was a box arrived on my desk. It was in, wrapped up in brown paper and had a red ribbon. And there was a label on the side of it saying, give yourself a present. And I thought, oh, God, God that's the first <laughs> thing I'm going to open, isn't it? You know, I mean, that's the first, yeah, first yeah, thing you yeah, see. Yeah. So I pull open the ribbon, I open the box, and inside it there was a note and it said, employ me. Uh, excellent. <laughs> and I couldn't stop laughing the whole morning. And I eventually, um, she was called Eleanor Crawshaw. And uh, she, I called her in and she ended up working with me for sort of seven years and mm. until she married a footballer and had twins. Which <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, was, it was that kind of humour and that seems to be lacking and that innovation mm. and all that entrepreneurial side. I know when I get CV sent <clears throat> to me and it says to whom it may concern, mm. I think, mm, hello, you're writing personal. to me and actually my name's on the company. Therefore, right. it's, not, it's not difficult to understand who you might be directing this letter to. No. Mm. And write the letter and say, look, you know, you've bothered to find out about the person you're mm. writing to and say, you know, I love this project. I really enjoyed reading about this. You know, can I come and ask your advice? And that works in any industry. If you, mm. I, it's, I guarantee you the first thing anyone opens is a handwritten letter. Mm. Yeah. You think yeah. it's an invitation you think it's some you know because it's so it's such a rarity or just the first even even if it is an email but the first line to be personable or related to something mm -hmm. that has interested you as to why yeah. you're emailing yeah. like, that's yeah, just rule 101 i mean thing. Yeah. yeah and if it's on if it's a letter it's likely to be written on nice paper yeah. so you're going to pick it up because it has the feel of it no definitely right, yeah. and i think that's because they're such rare things <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah handwriting that's a bit of a that's a bit of a sort of novelty these days isn't it it is true yeah <laughs> yeah actually writing something down but i think yeah you know, that's such a unique thing. It's a gift. We, we work in a, in a tactile industry, in a textural industry, and, mm. and having something that someone's bothered, you know, to find out about, and they're presenting their creativity, then, you know, okay, then that's, that means I'll see you. Mm. And I, I, I bet you if, you, if you wrote and say, I would love to get your advice, can I talk to you about this? You know, most people have got egos, and they they think, oh, I'd like to impart my knowledge to you. And, yeah. you know, and they'll, they, um, uh, I, th I think that's what's lacking. You know? mm. Yeah. And how did really you true. find your, your um, journey without the formal training that some people might because there's a big divide yeah. isn't there between, no for sure because you come out of out of um education not fully formed at all right but you've got some skills but you need to learn so much in the workplace that in some ways learning it all in the workplace might just be i think there's two sides to it i mean generally the, from a school you know the schools will teach them skills like certain types of um, technology the cad or sketchup or any of those things that are useful for presenting ideas but they don't have the life experience to have the ideas to present mm -hmm. often mm -hmm. and so um, there's a duality to it, you know, I, I very much learned on the job. I was lucky, Sylvia had her own workroom, so she taught me about cutting and cutting and patterns and how to make curtains and how to upholster furniture and all those elements, which is one side of the job. Mm. But there's also the interior architecture side of the job, which is space planning, you know, mm. all those elements. Mm. I definitely think that some people have a, a born that way I'm left-handed they always say left-handed people are sort of spatially aware or think in three dimensions but I take in a room when I walk into it and I think it and I'm imagining it and often my work's done you know in my sleep or in as I'm driving or whatever it is mm. I sort of think of solutions for space and if someone says can you look at this I, I can't give them an answer at 100 miles an hour because mm. I've got to reflect on how's the room used who are the people that are commissioning the project you know how do they use the property the character of the property all of those elements and it's you bring them all together and it's it's 
your answer is through the prism of your experience. It's mm -hmm. through your your knowledge and you're distilling your experience. Um, I was once asked, House of Garden asked me to define taste once, <laughs> which I was like, mm -hmm. it would talk about a minefield. And I spoke to my father. I said, well, how, how would you define taste? And he said, well, taste is experience. I thought, yeah, he's right. It's everybody's experience is different. There's no right mm -hmm. answer. Um, and some people have had bad experiences, so, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but, but it was, yeah, that's, um, uh, I think it's definitely part of it. And, and, you know, it's like directing a film, you know, Ang Lee is different to Steven Spielberg, mm. um, and everyone's got a different idea and different experiences. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I'm always trying to impart, impart to clients is that there are many ways to skin a cat. Yep. And, um, and, and actually part of the problem these days is that they are bombarded with too much information and therefore mm. the decision making is, is made mm. is very tricky because there's just too much out Too much to information. Well, what I too heard recently is that you, so there are some people out there that don't have an internal monologue mm. and also there are people out there that can't see things in their minds. Oh, yeah. right. And I realised the other day, I can't see things in my mind. Oh, okay. I, I see the words around that object right. and can yeah, picture it, but yeah, I cannot yeah, picture, yeah. for example, an apple right now. Uh -huh. okay. So it's really interesting how all minds work differently, but yeah, it's yeah, actually yeah, yeah, yeah. getting to the same yeah, 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 problem. And we yeah. work in a very visual industry. Exactly. I think yeah. that the point about too much choices are important. I mean, I learned with, I also worked with Michael Inchbald for a while, and I, he was an amazing character to, to, to learn firsthand for, from. And he, his career started during the Second World War, after the Second World War. There was a limited amount of materials and he had to be innovative. And in a way that is more creative to be, to work innovatively like mm. that. And you know, he had this beautiful drawing room in Milner Street, which is unfortunately now gone. But the floor was made out of linoleum. Mm -hmm. And then he's got these very fine antiques in there. And people always perceived it as if it was a marble floor. But if it was, you know, soft to the foot and, you know, mm -hmm. clearly wasn't marble. But the way he had the patterns cut into it and he'd been innovative with it, you know, that was the sort of magical thing. And I think there's a tendency now with design to people want to put all expensive things in it mm. for it to be good and the point about being a designer is you may have a really beautiful color core top on a table which is melamine with a wonderful bronze frame on it or something but it's it's about using the materials in a way that looks chic or, mm. or and mm. and people won't perceive that as a cheap yeah, yeah, part totally. of a scheme yeah, yeah. and of course with, with, mm. when we work with hotels that's always a big part of mm -hmm. it because everything gets value engineered. Mm -hmm. yeah. Fucking word yeah. that comes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can ve that now. Uh, really? Every time I ask a question with <laughs> yeah. that word, and everyone's yeah. just like, so, oh, my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they're in it to make money. I always love this idea in hotels as well of these cycles. And rooms are supposed to last seven years, yeah. but you and I know that they push them to fourteen. Yes, and, yeah, 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 yeah. A few tart ups along yes, the way. Exactly. So <laughs> a few lipstick and rouge jobs. Right. Yeah. Yes. Bit of slap. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about perception though isn't it and, and that's when, when looking at your um, portfolio of mm -hmm. work there's a clear common denominator in, in the projects that you work in in, in Mayfair mm -hmm. I mean you've really helped redefine the area and luxury within the area mm -hmm. with the hotels that you've worked on how what were the challenges with that and how did you create because you've got a really clear distinct contemporary versus heritage mm -hmm. um, narrative going on within those hotels? I think, I mean, for me, the one that's probably the most well-known and went on to become probably the most successful hotel in the world financially in its set was the Connaught. Mm. And when I first went to the Connaught, um, we were talking about the Savoy Group as mm. was. Um, I was asked um, to look at it by someone called Geraldine McKenna, who was the chief executive at the time. 
And she said, are we doing 20 rooms in the hotel? And I walked in and I thought, this place is like an old people's home. And they, they had literally bits of furniture. You know those big sort of National Health chairs, the yes. green, green yep. vinyl chairs. Yep. With yep. The, yep. With, if you lift up the seat, there's a potty. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Some of these were parked in the corridors yeah. and stuff, because you know, someone had died in the hotel and they'd left the furniture <laughs> in the corridor. And um, <laughs> anyway, she, I said, look... I said, I'm not going to make any impact on this place, mm. you know, unless you do the whole thing. Anyway, I, there was a whole back and forth. In between times, I'd also been appointed to work with Andre Balage in New York as a consultant, mm. head of design and development for him. So there was this sort of, you know, I, I had this sort of conflict in whether I was going to get involved with the project or not. But eventually, we sort of ended up aligning and it became the whole hotel. Mm. And... For me, what was nice about it was because we started with a history and because we started with an inventory which hadn't been stolen or sold off or whatever along the way, there were all the original artworks, there were all the original furniture. It had been the showpiece for Sir Blundell Maple, who'd started Maples wearing in Gillow department store. Mm. Um, there were all these amazing things. So what I did was, I remember there were <laughs> trucks arrived. The day we started on the hotel, we had to empty it out. And literally I was standing on the pavement and saying, keep get rid of, <laughs> sent to the store. And there was stuff that we, and we, we rescued the best pieces of furniture out of the suites. It's not a period I love. I'm not fond of post late 19th century taste because it was also another period of excess and, and, mm. and, and too much detail. But what was great about it was we, I identified elements and I have this sort of photographic memory so I can remember which room had which painting in it or which piece of furniture in it. And so in order to make sense of that, on the grand staircase at the Connaught, which um, we had to um, reinvent because it had been messed around with in the 40s, they blasted in and got rid of bits and pieces. And when you go there, it's perceived as the original space. Mm. But in fact, it's been recreated. Mm. Um, I tipped all the 19th century art and the good pieces of furniture into the public area so everybody could experience them. Mm. And, and then I used elements in the key suites. Um, and then we picked things that were part of the narrative, which were, you know, Graham Sutherland, who was a famous artist, mm. that, he lived in the hotel for 10 years. So we had, some, we acquired some of his artwork, we named a room after him and a floor in the new wing. And, and you know, all of those things are great gifts, the mm. hotel. Uh, General de Gaulle lived in the hotel. Um, Gaston Paleski was his aide-de-camp and had an affair with Nancy Mitford. And, you know, there's this so amazing loads, social so history. to pull on. Yeah. yeah. And there's still not a Mitford suite there, which is one of my <laughs> intentions. Uh, or a De Gaulle suite. Or a Chanel suite. Because mm. um, the Duke of Westminster had, had famously used to conduct an affair with Coco Chanel mm. in the Connell. Mm. And um, so for me, that was the sort of magical bit of working the project. And because we had, the budget wasn't, wasn't sort of lavish. Mm. We, we had quite a strict budget. But because I had wonderful things to augment the, the schemes, mm. yeah, you could, that was amazing. Yeah. And, and you walk in, this, my favorite bit of design was the, the carpet on the staircase, which I, I designed. It, it took sort of five or six attempts to get it right, because obviously it has been made by a commercial maker, but, mm. and all those things. But I always think it's, it's, they've just renewed it again, mm. and it's, mm. it's a sort of classic, wonderful carpet. It looks like a 19th century carpet, but it's, uh, the scale's been sort of increased a bit, mm. and the colors are very rich. But then I used block colors on the wall, so that gave it, it's a traditional space but with a contemporary mm -hmm. sort of twist. Mm -hmm. And um, and so identifying the elements which were timeless and then trying to find mm. things that would not make it feel like a museum. Mm -hmm. And there's a you know, that's a that's that point about taste and you know, and how to 
um, balance that. Balance it, yeah. Mm. Okay. And, yeah. And how easy was that to to navigate the client through <laughs> to get sign off on certain parts? Um, it's always there's always a point where they have to trust you because you can see it in your head and mm. they won't be able to see what's in your head. Mm. And um, so thankfully, fairly early on, because there was such a and a tight deadline, the owners made a bet that they could close and reopen the hotel in six months, which they did. Mm. But we had to open a half floor every month afterwards. Yeah. So we opened with the ground floor and the first floor, mm -hmm. or half the first floor, and then had to go on through. And then there were these terrible situations that they'd bring on you, like Anna Winter coming to test out one of the suites while well, half the building <laughs> was a, still, a yeah. building site, and you're like, what the fuck? She's coming down one, one <laughs> end of the corridor, and the decorators yeah. are walking down the other end. Oh. And they that's the same with all hotel refurbishments when they're trying to operate the hotel and yes, do the so it's always yeah. the same thing I never forget it was a staff Christmas party and I'm very hands-on and you know normally that you know as a decorator you should be able to be quite precious but you're not uh, I'm not and um, I lit one of the um, project managers from the building firm walked off site because he was he couldn't take the pressure and there was a Christmas party about to happen and they hadn't finished laying the marble in the reception and the last few slabs and I was lifting mm -hmm. slabs of marble and one of the owners said, are you coming to the Christmas party? I said, I'm not going to fucking Christmas party. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was exhausted. I was sort of covered in, in you know, dust and everything. And I sort of went home but we yeah. were literally were laying the the floor in the reception at the time. Oh, <laughs> so you should have gone to the Christmas party. No, I should have done that. I was <laughs> beyond it. Uh, my fuse had gone at that point. But, yeah. And then um, I know a little bit about the, the Claridge's um, mm -hmm. hotel project, purely because you were on a round table with us and you told us right. about the lighting scheme. And that, was, yeah. that really intrigued me, the fact that you um, had these remote control yeah. lightings to, to position on the F&B areas. Uh -huh. um, what what was the brief when you when you got given that hotel? Um, so I mean that's referring to so there's different rooms in the the public areas which I, which I worked on and the French salon and the drawing room are 1890s rooms which were designed in fact or consulted on by um, Cesar Ritz before he did the Ritz Hotel. So the the Doily Cart family who owned the Savoy Group. Um, engaged Ritz to, who was this great hotelier in Europe, to um, consult on the building of Claridge's in 1897. And so there's these two spaces which were very, I would argue, not very well decorated and I had to rethink them. And they're, they're big scale, they're not refined, it's 19th century bulky sort of um, detailing and everything. And so working through the lighting on that, accenting the right things, um, knowing which antique pieces to have copied and matched to. So there were, they, we found sort of old wall lights that had been part of the scheme and I had those, you know, remade and, and putting those all in the middle level, relighting a chandelier so that inside the chandelier there was a downlight and an uplight mm. to light the ceiling, yeah. you know, and getting a cut glass bowl made and it has to look like it's part of that beautiful Wilkinson chandelier that's hanging in the drawing room. But that had a lot of thought going to it and then colouring the ceiling. The remote controlled spotlights that you talk about, I mean, when you're in uh, hospitality, you're selling a show, you, you know, you've got to sell something. And the food on the tables at a wedding or a bar mitzvah or, you know, mm. business dinner has to pop, you know, and that's, you know, so you're creating the ability for the chef to show what they do well. Mm. So whether that was Simon Rogan or Daniel Hum or, um, whether it's Martin Nail, who's the exec chef for Claridge's, they want to have something to show off there. So you're thinking 
the ambience of the the atmosphere of the room has to feel authentic and um, seducing to to a client, um, but also you need the contemporary side where these remote control spots can pinpoint on a table mm -hmm. some amazing floral display mm. or some beautiful um, food that's been created mm. for the for mm. the event, and mm. and that's really important to understand that. And also that goes with so when I did Farrah, which unfortunately isn't there anymore. And now Daniel Hum's restaurant is closed, so you know the fickle world of, of, mm. of hotelery. But one of the beautiful things was working um, on Farrah. I, I don't think anyone argued that the interior wasn't a beautiful space, and the, it was so nice working on the lighting there because we, I was literally thinking of everything through the day, um, and whether it's the natural daylight coming in from the right-hand side of the restaurant candlelight at night you know the flattering light of a candle mm. and and then the pin spots on the food and all of that and we worked quite a sophisticated lighting scheme mm. in there so that at every time of the day nobody felt that they were shortchanged wherever they sat in the restaurant mm. even if you were furthest away from the windows mm. um i love mirror but mm. using it in a subtle way so that you can look up from the table and see who's walked into the restaurant without mm. turning your head around mm. And, you know, see what's going on around, be engaged without, you know, any awkwardness and mm. all those subtle things, you know, good design isn't necessarily noticeable, mm. bad design you'll remember. Really nice. <laughs> Did you use, do you, so in terms of lighting, because of the complexity these days of the mm. actual light fittings themselves, etc., and the loadings mm -hmm. and the LED and whatnot, it's a very long, very um, mm. different world to when we started in terms oh, of yeah. you know, a few tungstens mm. and a couple mm -hmm. down. Do you use, do you have it in your mind uh, as to what you want to create and then you work with lighting yes. designers to, to follow that through yeah. with all the and, technical and specs? Yeah. Yes, definitely, because Lighting designers are great about systems, um, the latest types of lamps, the yeah. latest types of elements. I'll always design the light fittings mm. in a scheme that mm. I'm designing. The decorative. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then I also feel, you know, that might be a ceiling that's backlit or any of those mm. elements. Um, I also know what kind of atmosphere I want to mm. achieve. Um, there's a lot of nonsense spoken about lighting and they talk about true colour and the, you know, I mean, it just drives me nuts. If, mm. you're talk if you've got a beautiful painting that... Uh, you know, an, an artist didn't have LED um, 5,000 Kelvin white light on his painting when he was painting <laughs> it. Um, he, 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 he was doing it by candlelight or gaslight or, yeah. or daylight or tungsten. And, yeah. you know, we got light from fire until very recently, mm. or, you know, and, and that has a certain warmth and richness to it. <clears throat> and knowing, being confident enough to work with the lighting designer and not let the tail wag the dog because yeah. you know they will try and sell something and a lot of them work with specific specific companies yeah. and you know i don't pretend to know the latest no one can't yeah. i think that yeah. that's actually a great thing to be able to say yeah. i don't understand that and i'm mm -hmm. never going to because i'm not a lighting designer yeah. so i'm relying on them for the technical knowledge but i i find that they over they over light areas definitely there's too much going on too many too too complex yeah. and it actually needs to be always brought back down to a more human level there's I'm a, never losing sight of that vision that yeah. overall vision i mean you create the ambience they they, they mm -hmm. yeah, I it's in, it's it's integral to yeah. a design, but it's not it's not it shouldn't be shouldn't dominate. Mm -hmm. So one there's a wonderful house I kind of grew up with in Malta. It's in a place called Medina in this old 18th century palazzo in the middle, and the entrance hall is lit by a single tungsten bulb, mm -hmm. and it's this big double volume space, and it creates this magical experience when you go in there. Now you couldn't read a book in the room, no, but. It, you know, you've got to remember, and ev there is this temptation to over, for overkill, and you know, you know, people are very sniffy about downlights. I actually like downlights in certain areas because they achieve things you can't achieve with 
other fittings, but mm. there is a tendency to overuse them. Mm. And it may be you just need one in the room because it might be lighting, say, a card table or something or whatever it is that's in a, in a space if you're doing a residential interior. But um, yeah, Especially you, within a heritage building because you have to retain uh, well, that sensitivity yes. for sure. One area that I really want to touch on is, is the sensory experience mm. at the moment. Sensory design, there's a lot of emphasis on, on you know, really utilising the senses when designing mm -hmm. new spaces. Um, are there sort of pitfalls that designers can fall down with that? Or, or ha what, what, are your, what are your sort of conversations you're having at the moment around sound and right. as well as light? Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, there's lots of different elements of sound and it's whether, whether something, the acoustic nature of the space that you're working in, um, the surfaces in the restaurants, if you've got lots of hard surfaces, will become very noisy very quickly, so you've got to think about those things. Um, I was working on a flat in Grosvenor Square years ago and the, the client was obsessed about um, noise coming from neighbouring apartments. And we insulated and insulated and insulated <laughs> this thing, noise-proof ceilings and walls and all that sort mm. of thing, you know, these special sort of redux floors and whatever, whatever. Mm. And eventually you could hear the subway because we blocked else everything else, else out, out and we could hear the underground oh. you know there it was <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so everything had gone and they said, what's that noise that's the underground i yeah, can't yeah. do anything about yeah, that yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you couldn't hear the underground before because of all because of all the ambient noise yeah. else yeah, oh. yeah. Um, and i also yeah. think you know one of the for me i mean especially in the age of covid where people lose their sense of smell and taste but smell is a really important mm. yeah. element of an atmosphere of a space and often hotels will put a smell in the air, air conditioning system. So the hotel costs, for example, there's a very identifiable scent when you walk in there in Paris, you know it, or you know, all of us have smelt radiating acing out of Abercrombie and Fitch, that, I don't know, that audible perfume that they Love pump it. out of the, yes. <laughs> Abercrombie and Fitch Yes, exactly. <laughs> but you know, there is, but, but those smells can create a memory or, yeah. uh, you know, and you, and that, I think that's really important. It's actually. really important, actually. I was, I was saying before we, we started recording that I'd stayed in a hotel recently in Mauritius and one of their uh, signatures is you walk in and you, you smell Lang Lang mm -hmm. as you walk in. And for Amazing. whatever reason, they've stopped pumping it out so much. And I was like, something really missing from mm -hmm. this hotel. This is part of the signature here. Value engineered. It's really <laughs> value engineered. I don't know what it was, the little rolled up towels that come, that come infused with it. They just weren't dishing them out because of COVID. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it was, but it was missing. Yeah. And it was mm -hmm. like, part of you, you've lost an arm yeah. in terms of their identity. I mean, on the shame. most basic level, it's your Lenore in your tumble drive. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that is a comfort or something that yeah. creates an atmosphere. Yeah. And, and those things are, you know, important. Yeah, yeah, until they're space. done badly. Yes. So we've all smelt that body shop, whatever it was, the, the body shop kind of, um, the, in the, in the, in the, the 80s or 90s, there was a, <laughs> a, there was a kind of berry smell that yeah. they did yeah. that got yeah. picked up it's by. And, and you walk into some um, private um, like hospitals mm. and they push yes, it out there. It's, just too it's much. that kind yeah. of, yeah, very, all the way down the high street. And you don't want to be, you no. don't want that. There's an amazing um, perfumier in Paris in the uh, Palais Royal, and it's called Serge. Most people don't know about it, but what a fantastic visual mm. experience going into that mm. shop, which is one of the
the most extraordinary retail experiences in the world, I think, I mean, the yeah. details in that place. But then the sensory experience, yeah. they have these wonderful sort of little Roman marble baths and they have their 38 perfumes and they dip them in and you smell them and then they sort of throw them down again and they smell the coffee to clear your scent yeah. to smell the next one. And, and you can have them mixed and all the rest of it. Well, I mean, what an amazing thing yeah. to be able yeah. to commission yeah. your own perfume yeah. and, and all of those things. No, so I, we're running out of time, but okay, I want to do... Talking I want to talk about interior design masks and yes. your next venture, but before that, I think we'll go into our quick fire round. So my first question to you is, you've mentioned to me in the past that lifts are the most difficult areas to light. Uh -huh. I want to know which designer, alive or dead, would you like to share a lift ride with? A lift with? Which designer? <laughs> oh my God. Uh, that is a really hard question. I know that every lift I go into that's badly lit with the white light, I tend to look down because I don't want to look at my face in 5,000 Kelvin white light. I, I want to look at it with like soft, you know, 2,400. So no one well, then? Nobody. Nobody in the lift, yes. That would be my, I, my ideal lift experience would be not being in a lift with someone. Got it. So, <laughs> Um, completely different mm -hmm. in terms of we haven't really talked about what you do outside of designing. Right. So I'd be curious to know, is it the beach or is it the mountains for you? Gosh, uh, I suppose by the sea, but okay. I could never sit on a beach okay. and mm. I just, I just couldn't, I, I need to be active and do things. So sort of where the mountain meets the beach. Maybe, maybe. yes. Yeah. yeah. But, okay. um, I need to, I need to do things and see things and experience, yeah. um, stuff, mm. you know, I can't mm. sit still because I feel that, you know, while you're in the physical, I very, I'm a very sort of spiritual person mm, and yeah. we have different, you know, we've got plenty of time for being in the ether later, but mm. I want to experience stuff and mm. do things mm. and, you know, enjoy. So you've had your holiday back to work. Yes. Which interior design trend would you most like not to repeat itself? Oh, goodness. Um, I think the idea that interiors are fashion statements for me is is nonsense because it's about the person and the, it's the relationship between the designer, the person and the space. And so yeah. for me, that's the, um, the thing that, you know, for them to have some one size fits all design is nonsense. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I, I keep, you know, for me, I keep. Um, I would say that that would be my general conversation about it. But yeah, I mean, it does get annoying when suddenly a colour becomes in vogue or mm. whatever. I just find it really interesting because we write about trends all the time and they, they get they get no social interaction whatsoever, but you see the page views and everyone's reading Looking, them. Yes, yeah. and, then they, but, and then it becomes, it enforces itself because you've created the yeah. trend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Just make them up. Yeah, make exactly. up a trend. No. So let's talk about interior design masters because this is right. your latest venture. Um, it's just really interesting to us, I think, mm -hmm. like designs become so much more accessible to, to everyone. Yeah. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Are there, are there difficulties we need to, in regards to the, the mm. perception of what an interior designer is? I think it has, there's two sides to it. One is it makes people aware, but there is a little knowledge is a dangerous thing in many cases, and it can cheapen or undervalue the role of a designer and what people don't seem to understand is that it is a profession so if you you know when I teach at um, KLC for example there's usually 30 people in the class and 15 of them are ex-bankers mm. and they come in because they think it's an easy job and they can just pick some colors and you know and and and, and do it become yeah. an in instant interior designer and I would say to them this is going to take you a minimum of seven years and they sort of look at you as if you're you know crazy mm. And um, I said for them to have the professional experiences and, and all the, the learning on the job. Mm -hmm. But with um, something like uh, with banking, I said, well, if I went into banking tomorrow, 
um, how long would it take for me to learn the mm. system? And they said, well, it would take you, you know, this long. And yeah. I said, well, why do you think, think yeah. this is any different? Mm. Um, do you think that's because we don't have the regulations that, say, architects have, and so there's not the sort of, there's so many different ways to approach interior design, yeah. we don't have the formal, uh, just formal lines of education. That but also there's, there's no right or wrong either. No, it's there quite, isn't. It's, very no. Subjective. it's a subjective thing. And so for me, I don't, you know, I mean, I, I did an architectural diploma. I'm not, I'm not architecturally qualified. But I have a lot of working experience, mm. and I and I love what I do. So, you know, it's you know whether it's in the states, you have these very sort of um, strict sort of um, uh, qualifications to become mm. a state qualified interior designer. Mm. Mm. I'd hesitate to suggest those were possibly not the best interior designers because <laughs> <laughs> they followed that path. But you know, so I think there's there is a happy medium. We used to I, I used to be a member of the um, one of those associations, and after twenty years, I sort of left it because I, I not because I didn't think it had a role, but you know, I kind of got irritated about the core professional development thing, which or whatever it was mm. that you had to do every year, and I was thinking probably do all of that in a week mm. from what I do so yeah that's you know and, and what was it like um, judging these amateur designers on, on the show um, so they're they call them designers which I think is a mistake not because I don't think they they've got talent or because they don't have potential um, again it's that thing about perhaps cheapening the role of the designer um, and not everyone can be a designer um, the way the format of the show worked was that we were um, asked to judge the spaces before we met the designers. And that was quite interesting. It was a really interesting exercise. Mm. And then you could kind of, it was interesting meeting the characters behind them as well. Mm. And out of the nine that I judged, there was one who was, who I think won on that section yeah, of the show, yeah. who was incredibly good it, it must be difficult for the designer because although it's a, a live brief and it's for a client mm. it is a competition so they're wanting to impress and to to, to create those pop-out moments yeah. where where does the sensitivity and the, the the balance lie there was a very funny the brief for the the, the, the show that I did was about a, a botanist influencing the space in the in the in these rooms and um, it varied from somebody using plastic flowers on the ceiling of the room to somebody finding some incredible engravings that were beautifully detailed and and you know some people think about every single detail I'm one of those people I'm obsessive about it and if I'm working on a project I'll think about the history of the place the the owners and all of those mm. elements um some of those people clearly clearly didn't and you know it's a very broad and that comes out in how they interpret the brief and or, or ignore the brief, as you'll see. <laughs> so, and some people just ignored it and did whatever they were going to do. Um, and, you know, the, the, fine. But, you know, one of the, this goes back to how, how is a good designer good? Well, you have a brief from a client and sometimes it's not what you necessarily mm. want to do. Um, but you need to solve a problem. Design is problem solving and you're trying to make something work in a particular way or create a particular atmosphere or, or f mm. make the room seat a number of people, whatever it is. Mm. And, yeah. mm. and those are all those elements that are important when you, yeah. you've got a design brief. So. Mm. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. <laughs> yeah. That's all. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
So Hamish, what a fantastic interview that was. He's great, isn't he? He's Guy brilliant. is just he's amazing. Really good. So well, he, he was on one of our roundtables mm. and he just had so much knowledge and I just mm. I just knew that we needed to capture him on the mm. podcast. Mm. No, it really comes across his experience and the wealth the wealth of his his uh, his experience is all, you know, up there. It was great. Yeah, for sure. And also just like his journey, like everyone's mm. journey we've had on this podcast has been completely different. Mm -hmm. There is no cookie cutter way of, of becoming an interior designer I mean, or an architect. From the Navy to an interior designer. Yeah, know, and it really has to be innate in you to mm -hmm. understand how how schemes and understand how like the creative vision can work mm -hmm. like that. I think mm -hmm. he's just, he, yeah, he's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, no, really, really good. Very happy to have interviewed him. Absolutely. Here. So from one luxury legend to yes. another, yes. our next podcast is going to be Jo Littlefair. Finally got her on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, great. So she's the co-founder of Goddard Littlefair mm -hmm. and she won Interior Designer of the Year at the Britlist Awards 2019 when she you yourself, did. Harriet, I was know. a judge. And I, I think that was. you actually awarded her the Award. I did indeed, yeah, 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 yeah. And that was really funny because I saw her in the in the drinks beforehand, and I thought, I know what's coming, coming here. <laughs> and then when she came up to the stage, I winked at her and said, "Here you go." And she was really, it was, it was a lovely moment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's going to be a reunion for all of us. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs>